0: All righty, you guys. <laughs> All right, let's head back to our seats really quick. <laughs> Y'all, we can hang out in like 30 minutes. We can hang out as long as we want. <laughs> we want to do it now. Yeah. Uh, me too. All right, let's pray really quick. Father, I pray that you would bless this time as we study your word. Bless the children as they study your word, Lord. I pray that you would speak through the teachers and um, just grow our heart for your word and grow our spirits, Lord, as we come in contact with you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We are on Romans 3 this week. I'm gonna, this is, since this is the third week, and most of us have been around for the last three weeks, I'm not going to spend too much time on introduction, but I'd like to give everybody some context just so you know what A Romans is and how that's working, so you know what we're talking about, especially this week since we're jumping in kind of midstream into an idea that Paul is laying out. A uh, little quick background Um, the apostle Paul in the new Testament wrote a whole lot of letters to a bunch of different churches in different places. Paul started out as a bad guy named Saul who was, you know, working against the church. He was a Jewish leader and he was actually involved in some, um, even killing of people, but definitely arresting people and trying to stop the church being, turning into a thing. He encounters Jesus himself in a vision on the way to arrest some more people and then has a radical conversion experience and becomes A main leader in the early church, you see him all throughout the book of Acts doing all sorts of interesting, cool things, and then writes a whole lot of letters to the churches in different places to communicate with them, give them some leadership. They didn't have email back then and actually didn't even have like a postal service back then. So the fact that we have these things is pretty cool. To this letter that he wrote to the church in Romans it was the church that was there, which was predominantly made up of two different groups of people They were having a little bit of an issue at the time. There was the Jewish group of Christian people that were part of the church, and then the Gentile or non-Jewish group, and through some kind of different events in the city of Rome and things like that with the emperor and all, uh, some of the Jews being kicked out and then coming back in, the church itself had kind of changed the way it looked, and so they were having some tension, you know. Some of the, you know, like, how Jewish do we need to be or how Jewish do we not need to be and all that kind of thing. And Paul was like, let me help you with this. So he writes this letter or this um, book, which we call now, to help with that. And that's the main core of what he's talking about. And in, by talking about these two groups of people getting together, he lays out in the New Testament a really good picture of justification, salvation, and all sorts of things. And he's, he's pretty sneaky in a way of how he puts the argument together. And we've been going a chapter at a time. And uh, today we're going through chapter 3. The last two chapters, Paul has been um, pretty much addressing, as you remember, feelings of self-righteousness, you know, like how we might feel cool with God, but we're pretty sure all these other people aren't kind of thing. And it hasn't exactly been fun because Paul has a heart. He doesn't agree with that, as we don't either, but, you know, we find ourselves in our brains maybe sneakily doing this in different ways, and... Paul kind of just pokes you in the eye over and over again. Be like, yeah, see, here, that's a bad way. You're like, oh, I do that one. And then the other thing, well, I don't do that one. And I'm like, yeah, but you do do this. And you're like, ah, oh, man, you know. And this is the last hope kind of chapter where he's starting to, we go through this last time he's laying out a few more things, and then we start to turn around. And this Chapter has within it a famous Bible verse. I mean, the whole Bible is famous, but you know, some verse like John three sixteen is the most famous. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The kind of stuff that people who don't even know Christianity were like, I've heard that somewhere. You know, Um, this is a famous Bible verse, Romans three twenty three, which is kind of the core of the whole thing for this today. So. If you want to hear this and then fall asleep, it's fine. You'll get the whole message from just this one thing. Romans 3:23 and 24 is, is summed up like this: "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." And then 3:24, "and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus or by Christ Jesus." That's the whole thing. That's the point he's getting to today. But he takes his time and we'll go through it taking some notes as we go, okay? And so, the first chapter when he introduces himself and then he lays into the gentile people like hey guys this is not how to live you know or this is not how you remember you were saved from all this bad stuff you did that kind of thing and then the second chapter he kind of lays into the jewish people he's like just co- you got that your group think that you're okay here's a whole lot of stuff about that and he's kind of still in continuity of the last chapter talking predominantly to the jewish group but everybody starts to see i think what he's doing They're like oh okay we're all the, the same i get here you know but he also wants to make sure that... What, wait, what? Okay, sorry. thought you were talking to me. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, I didn't think so either, but you are right there. Um, the, um, it's fine. It's fine. We are forgiving people here. The, uh, but uh, Chapter 3, he's, uh, he needs to address some things along the way so you don't get too many misconceptions, you know. So he goes right into this in verse 1. What advantage, then, is there to being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. There's an exclamation point there. So he's like, there's a lot of value in it. He's like, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So he's, like I said, he's continuing to speak to this Jewish group predominantly. And he's saying there's lots of value in your Jewish heritage. He's like, and Craig Keener put it this way. So he's like, there's Jewishness has and this he 's a Bible scholar Jewishness has a lot of special value it's special it's just not special in the regards to salvation and that 's what he 's getting into here. but it starts to introduce this strange tension between the universality of God and the particularity of God, which i 'm going to talk about at the end so hold on to this idea of God being the God of everyone, but he's also his activity being so predominantly to date through this group of people that's a strange tension to find yourself in and again i said we'll talk a little bit more of that but we don't want to get distracted by it right now so he gets into this discussion about human interaction with god and he uses a technique that we might even use today they call it like a like it's kind of an interlocutor where he has kind of a debate with an imaginary person but the imaginary person is saying things that people have said to him you know and you'll see some of these things he makes notes parenthetically so he says, well, what if some were unfaithful? He's talking about the Jewish people. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Another exclamation point. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? And he's like, let me just make sure you understand. I'm using a human argument here. I'm having a debate with." a a human argument. This isn't what God says. And he's like, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously say we claim, let us do evil. Like, let's do bad things so, so that good may result. Like, you know, if God can use all things for the good of those, you know, you see this? He's like, well, then What does it matter what I do? That kind of thing. He's like, guys, this is ridiculous, you know? And then he says to just like, he says, their condemnation is just. He's like, that's so dumb, I'm not even really going to interact with it, you know? But then he gets into what he's talking about. Verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage in being Jewish? And he's like, not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And Calling Jews sinners would have been particularly offensive to them. Like, we're used to this way of talking, but when you're that group of people that God has specially done some things through, that word is usually a word we talk about everybody else with. So him including Jewish people into that group would have been particularly bothersome to some people if they had been thinking of themselves that way. But all this is everyone, including all Gentiles, all Jewish people, all human beings, Okay. And his main point is everyone is under the power of sin. But since he knows the Jewish people will have a hard time with that, he lays into a list, and you'll see a lot of quotation marks in this section, and it might be even like put on the page in a different way. It's because there are a whole bunch of quotes, and he's quoting throughout a whole lot of the Old Testament. And people like Paul, because he's like a rabbi and all, you know, these guys study. Most of these guys had memorized most or all of the Old Testament. Like, They didn't all have like a copy of it like we do. You had to have a copy of it. You see what I'm saying? And they did that. And they had, you know, they weren't watching Netflix all day, so they had a lot more time to study stuff. You know, anyway. But these quotes are from all over the place in the Old Testament, and that's the point he's trying to make. He's like, I can show you from everywhere. Like, and they're from like Isaiah, a lot from the Psalms, from the Proverbs, and there's even Ecclesiastes makes a little showing in here. But he just, it's just a list, you know. He's like, in case you're bothered by what I just said, let me remind you what the God's law and the, you know, the Old Testament says, our book. He would be saying to them, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. That's a pretty big one. <laughs> and he goes, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, get, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. This is like some pretty intense stuff. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, and then goes on, now he's back to him talking. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world can... help. And the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So, he's talking about this thing is that God did give the Hebrew people a law. I mean, you remember in the book of Exodus, that's what Moses gets, and there's additional, like that term, what he's talking about here could include all of those Old Testament books. It depends on how they would be using that. But he at least means like God's saying, hey, as my people, I want you to live this way. And he gives them a lot of instructions, which the idea in some of these people's mind is like, well, you could follow these, right? And so Paul's saying, like, and if I do follow them, doesn't that make me righteous? And now it's not too big of a departure to see how we can, even as non-Jewish people, try to relate to God in this way. Well, I do all the things God wants me to do. I'm a good person, right? Paul's kind of saying, no. And he, in fact, not even just no, but that's not even what this thing did. He's making a point here that the law itself revealed sin. Like it was just kind of, it, it didn't create, make you righteous. What he's saying is like, here's the way I want you to live so that you can see that you're not doing it because of the level of impossibility to do this. He's like, you know, you can't live according to this and then be righteous. Now, there are characters in the Old Testament that seem to, that God calls them righteous and stuff like that. But his point here is, you can't live a righteous life. You can't do it by yourself. All have sinned. Remember, I gave you the punchline already at the end. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's saying the role of the law, the Old Testament law, is to reveal sin, not to make us righteous. We need God to do that. And this also, he's making sure just in every possible way that it's important that we know this as human beings, that none of us have a claim against God. I was talking yesterday about deconstruction, and I said you have to um, make some assumptions. Like if I'm talking about God, like God being a real God, like the, worthy of that term, you know, the, the, the being who creates everything and exists above and before all things and knows all things and does, has all power and all that kind of thing you know we don't have a claim against that and even one of those characters in the old times i was i was mentioning like job you know in the story of job he's like hey i didn't do anything during all this i didn't you know and then his friends go like well you probably did this or that and he's like well that's actually not true and when finally as kevin was talking about yesterday you finally get all the way to the end and he's like yeah but god this isn't fair god kind of says back as kevin paraphrased yesterday he's like even if i explained it to you you wouldn't understand you know, and, and then he starts getting, listen, I was like, do you know where any of this stuff, like, do you know where the snow comes, like, you don't know anything, you know, so like, the idea that you could have a claim against me, a moral claim, a logical claim, or any kind of, he's like, he's, Paul is saying, like, we don't have that. What we have is this collection, collect uh, collection for ourselves and as a group of all these terrible things we've done, that God has created this perfect thing, and we've broken it in an individual way, and in a corporate way, and a universal way that's our contru- contribution. He's he's trying to help us to see that, which again, this is downer stuff, but he's making he's we're going to turn the corner, okay? Righteousness through faith. That's the title that's on the next section for me. Oh, I need to make an apology. If you've been reading along on the screens, I put all the scriptures in in chunks and then I realized there was a different translation than what I have and I was like, eh, "I'm not going back to do it." So just just read. It's nice to read different translations, anyway. I have the NIV. That's what I'm reading. That's the NLT. Both are great, you know. But if you're like, "What is he reading?" That's what's happening. I just normally I would go back and do it, but it was late and I was tired. So, but now, apart from the law, uh, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. See, but now, now he's talking about what? But now we have Jesus. Like the righteousness—he's like saying through Jesus, this righteousness has come. But now, but now something is different. The law was here; God gave it to His people to reveal sin to them, to the world, to everybody. But now, we want to say we're turning the corner. But now, righteousness has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. Again, the law and prophets testify. He's not saying like, but now throw all that stuff out because it doesn't matter anymore. He's saying it's continuing. That's why we have the New Testament and the old testament in our bible as christian people okay he's saying but now we're moving into uh, that story verse 22 the righteousness is given through faith in jesus christ to all who believe hopefully i mean hope this is hope filled to all who believe there is no difference between jew and gentile for all have sinned this is now this is the the verse for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, or by Christ Jesus. I'm going to read 22 through 24 again just because I think this is such a core thing. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You may go, but how? 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. To be received by faith, he he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to, to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus? Now that's a complex little statement right there. But what he's saying that the way Jesus did this was by dying on a cross at the hands of Romans, and then through going through that whole process, and then three days later be coming back to life, he's broken this whole thing. But he's also fulfilled it all. He didn't skip it. He didn't go ah reset, you know. He's saying, I'm going to walk through all of these things. And you can see echoes, and he knows this on per, per, when he's talking about blood and atonement and the shedding of his blood, that Jesus, who was God in the flesh, had to die on our behalf and shed his blood. And it echoes the language you hear in the Old Testament when you read through Leviticus, num, you know, all the things, and even Exodus where he's talking about, okay, here's how you're going to, I'm going to give you instructions to make this place for God's presence to dwell but you got to go through all these things and sacrifice these animals and blood has to be involved in this whole thing. And out to our ears as Western people are like, I don't, that doesn't, I don't get it. You know, and it, I get, I, I get that you don't get it. Cause I, I also don't get it sometimes, but the point is this shedding of blood, the cost of it has to be real. Okay. We could just maybe stay there for a little bit and Jesus doesn't show up in the story in this whole story, and just hit a massive reset button. He goes all the way to the darkest and deepest wounds and experiences them on our behalf, and then, in so doing, reverses them. I love how uh, maybe it's a helpful. Just this is not something I was planning on talking about, but in the in the in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe Narnia story, which is kind of a parable or paraphrase of some of this stuff. Um, when Aslan, who's kind of representing Jesus in the story, he kind of takes on the sin of another person and takes their um, sentence of death. And there's this whole thing that the witch, who's the devil in this thing, is like, hmm, I've tricked him. He thinks he's going to save these people because he's like, he'll die for them, but then he's dead. Like, he's so stupid, you know. And then he goes and dies for them, and she's like, now I can take over the whole place because the only one that can stop me is dead. And so she goes to, like, wage war against everybody else. And then the people, the the girls, the the little girls in the story are so despairing. They're like, oh, my gosh, you know, Aslan's dead. Like, I never thought that does, you know, you can be admirable at that moment in the story of his sacrifice on behalf of the sin of the person. The wrong thing that Edmund had done. He he took it on himself. He took the sentence of that. And it was according to the deep magic, you know. And then, like, one of the girls at one point just protests. He's like, well, can't we just not go along with that? And he's like, disregard the emperor's magic. He's like, that's not possible, you know. But now, so they're despairing that he's dead, and then all of a sudden the table cracks, and Aslan's alive again. But now righteousness. And so this, he, and she, they go. What, what was that whole thing about the the emperor's magic? And he's like, no, nah, she was right. But what she didn't know was there was a deeper magic. And I don't, want, you know, you already kind of see where the story's going. But you know, we've all read it, but go read it again. You know, because that actually that picture helps our minds a little bit because we get struggled with like blood and you know, especially like. <laughs> Emily was reading through the. um, She's not here, so I can mention this. She was reading through like a reading plan, and she's like, "I'm in Leviticus, and there's just a whole lot of." It's like, and then the doves in half, and the blah blah blah, and the doves in half, and blah blah. blah. I was like, "Yeah, it is kind of how that reads." Because as a Western person, like I don't spend a lot of time cutting doves in half at church, you see. But (laughs) point is, it's costly. Well, anyway, I've gotten a little too. But the table cracks. There's a deeper magic, as as Aslan or Jesus talks about, and this is what he's saying not skipping it, justifies faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It's excluded. Because of the law? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because the law that requires faith. This is where he's starting to land. This was the whole plan the whole time. The law and the prophets teach that the way to be justified is faith, not following the law at some impossible level that you can't do. Only God can do that, hence Jesus' coming. For we maintain that, in, that a person is justified by faith. This is verse 28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is, or is God the God of Jews only? Okay, here, so here's what we're starting to see. Okay, this faith now makes it so that Gentiles can be included. You know, before the law was addressed to the Jewish people. And the Jewish people could, you know, know, in their minds, fulfill it, you know. And that wasn't for kind of everybody else. But now he's saying that the whole point of this thing was to recognize what sin was. And the whole time they were talking about that, you're going to be healed, justified, redeemed by faith. And now that faith is what Jesus has done opens that faith to including everyone or anyone. Remember, we read Isaiah 61. Jesus read that over himself. Like I am the guy that's doing that. And he always is, always will be, and always has been. And this was always the plan. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? He is not. No, he is the God of Gentiles too. Yes, of Gentiles too. Remember, if he's going to be a God that's worth that word, he has to be God-God. Okay? The God. I like how Asaph was when he. I told him that I liked this, in the kind of adapting to English, you know, when he says the God, I told him, I was like, I actually like that. He's like, I don't mean, it's like, you know, that's really like the Lord. And then it's like leaving the article in front of it. It's like, I actually like it because he is the God. And even if it seems grammatically weird in English, I would like to say that more. Like he is the God, the God, you know, and I think it gets at it better. Um, yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncir- uncircumcised through faith not by the stuff we do. It's through faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. He's like, we're upholding what its original purpose was the whole time. We're not working against it. It's not, as you read that, that, that verse, verse 21, but now, you know, apart from the law. He's like, saying, I'm not saying instead of, or but now, that doesn't matter anymore. Or but now, he's like, no, we're upholding it. We're showing what its original purpose was, to do the thing that it was doing, and it's doing it. And Jesus came and did what He was doing, which was this, as as they say in Narnia, the deeper magic. But this is a kind of heady stuff. That's the end of that chapter, which it does continue into chapter four, where we really start to turn the corner and see what He's been talking about. But the whole thing has been about Jesus, and so I want to. Kayla, can you, is Kayla in here? Or Justin, somebody, come do some sweetening. We're at the end, but I have a couple. I want to read one thing, and then. Dalton is back in our midst, so I'm going to have him come read something else that I think illustrates this. Because this is uh, hard stuff to fully wrap your mind around. Like, you might need to take some time and uh, spend, you know, looking into some of these things that I talked about. But this idea, I talked to you about the struggle between the particularity of God operating through Hebrew people, the, Israel, the country, and God being the God the only the God, right? Now, us, looking back 2,000 years from when Jesus came, we're like, yeah, sure, whatever, it's fine. But it's... And we're saying that especially as European descendant or, you know, our this America being a descendant of European, like English, you know, like there's this whole mindset, this Western mindset I refer to sometimes. It might be easy for us to swallow some of that. But you you don't realize how... Maybe sometimes what you're saying, and you only can see a window into that when you have people that notice. And this this is a book called The Open Secret by a guy named Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary. I've mentioned him before because I think this guy saw some things that are specifically valuable to our time in the church now. And he saw them a long time ago because he was a missionary. He went to India as a missionary in like the 1930s, and then he was from England, so he went to India. And you would go on a bus. Like from England, that took a while. It was probably dangerous because you're going through like, yeah, some places. Anyway, um, and then he worked in India for a long time, and then he came back to England in like the 80s, like the late 70s, early 80s to retire. And then he kind of went, it's like, hmm, this England and the England I left aren't the same place. And this is interesting because this place now is harder to reach with the gospel than the place I just was. But because of his counter or his cross-cultural experience. I mean, he went from England, where people fought like he did, and their life experiences was like his, and the church was like his church, and they talked in English, and they talked about, they read the Bible in English, and you know, they thought in English, and all that kind of stuff. And then he went to India, and he's like, "I'm going to tell them about God, and that'll go great." And it did, but he ran into some walls really quick because of this particularity of what he was doing. And he wrote some of them down in this book. That's why I was going to share this part. The gospel, he says that Jesus preached is the good news of God's universal reign. It has to be. It has to be. God's universal reign. It is directed to the whole human co- and cosmic reality. And yet, it al- is also bound up with particular names of people and places belonging to particular cultures. Like when you read the Bible, what are you reading about? Okay? It speaks of the story of Israel. One people among all the peoples. And of the man whose Hebrew name is Yeshua. One man among all the billions who have lived. Its language and its fundamental symbols belong to the cultural world of the Eastern Mediterranean. Have you ever thought about that? And therefore, in the cultural worlds of Africa... India, Japan, you could add to the list, they remain foreign. I have re- referred in passing to this scandal of particularity. And now we must face it squarely, to a devout Hindu. This is what he's doing. I'm going to go into to India with the good news of who Jesus is and tell people about it. And he'll, he, he's coming, remember Isaiah 61, he's setting them free, all this kind of stuff. And this is what he ran into, to a devout Hindu heir to 4,000 years of profound religious and philosophical experience, there is something something truly scandalous in the suggestion that, to put it crudely, he or she must import the necessities of salvation from abroad. Do you see what he's saying there? These people have had this this religion faithfully, effectively, if you follow, for 4,000 years and you're going to you're going to have the audacity to come as some british dude and say don't all of that's wrong trust me you know and he keeps going is it really credible the hindu will ask that some supreme being the god whom i and my ancestors have loved and worshiped for 40 centuries is incapable of meeting my soul's need and that i must await the coming of an agent of another tradition from Europe or North America and if i am to receive his salvation what kind of god lowercase g here are you asking me to be to believe in is he is he not simply the projection of your own cultural bound prejudices like are you sure that you know and he's like come let us be reasonable let us open our treasures and put them side by side and we shall not and we shall see that your symbols and mine are but differing forms of one reality, the God. We're just coming up different sides of the same mountain, you know? This is not unreasonable when you're talking with other people. They're like, come on, lay it out, and I'll lay it out, and we'll see that we're talking about the same thing. That's what the Hindu person he's saying would say or did say to him, you know? Our symbols and my, your symbols and mine are but differing forms of one reality shaped according to different histories and cultures. If God is truly God... God of all the peoples and all the earth, then surely God can and will save me where I am with the means he has provided for me and the long experience of my own people. Another just a little quick piece. He said, the scandal of, this is him now talking, you know, the scandal of particularity is at the center of the question in missions, which he encountered as a missionary. To be precise, it is the problem of relating God's universality to his particular deeds and words. God is, over all and in all, not a sparrow falls to the ground without his will. Yet, the Bible talks of God acting and God speaking in particular times and places. How are these related? With what propriety can we speak of particular acts of God if God is universal, Lord of all? How can we relate to this universality, to this particularity at the same time? And so, that's kind of heady stuff I just threw at you there, but to think about how radical what we're talking about. Don't just be so familiar with it that you don't see how offensive this is or how disruptive this is. And it's disruptive to us as well. And Paul is addressing this in this thing because he's talking to this group of Jewish people and to this group of Gentile people who have now been included into the people of God, which was a surprise to a lot of people at the time. And he started this whole thing. The very first verse, he says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? And his answer to that is, much in every way. Just not in being righteous and saved, but in this kind of sort of way, where G- Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Like, that word is Jewish. He's fulfilling Jewish scriptures. He's answering, he's He's accomplishing the mission that God started. I mean, depending on where you want to go in the Bible, maybe all the way back at Adam and Eve, but certainly through Abraham, like I'm going to redeem everybody through your seed and all this kind of stuff. And and he's doing that. Jesus is doing that. But at the exact same time, he's the God, the everyone God, the God of all. And these two groups need each other because to the Gentile person, like the Hindu person, they're saying, I have to... Like, the way I see the world, fundamentally. Like, where the world comes from, why we exist, who I am, how I can better myself, how I understand time, and right and wrong, and all that kind of stuff, is wrong. And I have to go back and re-understand the entire universe through a lens that's been provided to me from a different group of people. And the answer is, yes. There's only one group of people to which that doesn't apply to. That's the Jewish people. The tragedy is that, and that's what Paul's, I don't want to get too far ahead into chapters 9, 10, and 11, but that's the tragedy that Paul's addressing here, is that so many of the Jewish people didn't see when Jesus came that that's what he was doing. That he was doing all of the things. And overwhelmingly, so many of the people that have accepted that, under, that have been, have been made righteous by what he did, have not been of the Jewish people. And we have had to import that whole worldview and that whole understanding that from the beginning God spoke and all that kind of stuff. That's all their stuff. And we had to import all of it. And so many of us have. It's at varying levels. And the tragedy is that they, most or so many of them didn't see what Jesus did as being connected to that. It's sort of some, like, that's not it. And Paul is grieved by this. Again, I don't want to get too far ahead, but you see that we need each other. We needed all the work that God did through these Jewish people to bring forth the salvation of the world, and they need us to reveal it back to them. No one has a claim over him. Paul is laying this out right now. It's not like, you're good, and you're not good, and you're good, and you're not good. It's not like that. No one's good. Everybody needs Jesus, and you need each other to hear about it. We all have needed to hear about it from somebody else. And you need to tell somebody about it as well. And there's a hidden warning in this whole thing to anyone, particularly Jewish people in this context, but you can apply this theme to the rest of it. The warning is anybody who thinks they're on the inside of what God's doing. Because you immediately think, I'm good. And you turn off that whole thing. And then you miss what God is doing. You see? Some of what they were even talking about earlier about like God moving outside the church, it's not because, it's because the church says no too often. Do you follow what I'm saying? And we can say no to what God is doing in our lives and in other people's lives because we feel safe already. And uh, I'm, what I'm going to have Dalton read in closing is as I was going through this, Jesus has this interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. And you know this story, but hear it in this context. Because Samaritans, like, you, if you if you see the history of Israel and, like, God has the people and they break apart and the kingdoms divide and uh, it's all this terrible stuff, and then you end up where they were at the time. And Jesus is showing up as the God in flesh, and he's encountering a woman who, in the story, yeah, she's not a good person, but she's also certainly not Jewish. You know, her Samaritan-ness to the point where Something I never fully noticed, where when Jesus asks her for water, he's breaking down like he shouldn't, that would make him unclean. Like he shouldn't drink from her vessel. And he's asking her for it. He's like, can I have some water? She's like, uh, you're not, you can't ask me that? Like, you know, you probably should know that, that kind of thing. And, and he's opening, he's, but now righteousness has come. And you see this story, but he doesn't back down from that particularity. Because you'll see the phrase that came to me, which is just going to be right in the middle of what he's reading. He's like, Jesus says, he's like, salvation is from the Jews, but it's for everyone. It's from one to everyone and from us to everyone else, you see. So I'm going to have Dalton read this story to close this time. And if you want to read along and you have a Bible or a phone, it's John 4 and uh, verses 1 to 29. And then we'll pray really quick and we'll close. The story of Jesus encountering someone who needed his mercy.
1: Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikhar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews yet the time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth the woman said I know that Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then Jesus, the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked him, what do you want? Or why were you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him.
0: Amen. You see that message that Jesus brings to her. He knows who she is. He knows everything she's ever done. But she hears in it hope. You see, even in his de- declaration of that particularity, um, she hears hope. And just for the sake of clarity, when I was saying about Jesus being unclean, asking for a drink of water, it's probably not unclean in the sense of the letter of the law, like the literal writing of the, the, the scripture, but the tradition that had been built around that and what people would have thought about that at the time, his action would have been seen that way. That's why she saw it as, "Uh, you can't do that. You know what I mean? Um, and so I want us to end this whole time with an understanding of hope. I think I made a hope slide. Can you put that up? Yeah, there you go. Let's just leave the word up. Before all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. That's all. All are invited. All are invited to the table of the Lord. All are invited. All. That's the hope. All. But now righteousness has come. All are included. All are invited. By his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. So, Father, let's stand. So, Father, I pray that we would be the kind of people that would worship you in spirit and in truth. That we would respond with hope to your offer of salvation. To free us from all those things we read of oppression and suffering. Proclaim sight to the blind... um, freedom from the cap- uh, for the captive and restoration of things and the bringing of joy instead of mourning and all that what you've done. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't um, turn back in the offense of the particularity, um, but we would also see your universal calling to all and our burden to share this good news with everybody and anybody in whatever way that we know how or can effectively. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts, that we would know you you, you you see everything we've ever done but you still love us and father i pray uh that when we worship you we would have these things in mind and we would worship you in spirit and in truth we're going to close in this song kayla's going to lead us if you have any thing that you want to lay before the lord or spend time in prayer the, the stairs down here is our altar time you can come kneel and spend time praying with god Anytime you want. And then after the last song, we'll have our prayer teams up by these front doors if you need prayer for anything. Not just anything that relates to what I've talked about, but anything. If you have something going on in your life, if you have trouble at work, or if you're, you know, that's what our prayer team exists for. The Bible talks about agreeing and laying on hands in prayer. And there's something different that happens. Like when churches do things together, it's not one plus one equals two. It's like one plus one equals a million or something like that. The same thing happens when we pray for each other. And we want to make sure that you know that. And it doesn't just mean that your whole life is all screwed up and you need to go in front of everybody and get prayer. It means that I need somebody to agree with me touching this thing because that's, when, that's the way God says to do things like that. So, so come forward if you need to pray. And uh, afterwards, uh, we'll just close. I'll pray right now. We'll just close and with this song. And then if you need prayer, come to our prayer team. So, Father, thank you for this gathering. We pray that you would go with us as we go from this place and then meet us even in these times of prayer and reflection. In Jesus' name, amen.